Advent Productions presents a topic on Bible prophecy. Presented by Benjamin Ong. Father in heaven, as we come to study your word once more, I pray that you bless us with wisdom and understanding from above. Son is the Holy Spirit, dear Father, and I pray that you would open our minds and help us to be receptive to the truth. And Father, I pray that these words that we study may be retained in our minds, that we can be effective witnesses for you in the future. Bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last class, we got up to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. Let's go back there. Daniel 7 and verse 7. And I want to review with you this verse and a few things that I want to look at before we move on. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. Daniel 7 verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So we see here characteristics of this next kingdom, which we lined up to be pagan Rome, or Rome. And we saw that Rome was emitting characteristics that we saw coming out that were imitating the characteristics of God. And we saw this in its imitation of its feet, of um, where it had brass nails and also had great iron teeth. Now, when we come to this beast, I want to just finish this off. Um, we've gone through half of it, but it says here in verse 7, it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. Now, what do you use to stamp with? The feet, but in conjunction with it, what's linked to it? The legs. And we saw that in Daniel 2, the legs were made of iron as well. So it's linking up to using this concept once again of repeat and enlarge to show us that it's none other than the kingdom of Rome. Now, the interesting characteristic that comes out is that this beast stamps whatever has not been broken into pieces. And this is exactly what the pagan Roman Empire did they were the ones that destroyed Jerusalem and, of course, became one of the world powers before that. Um, and it's signified here in Matthew 24. Let's jump over there. I want to show you this text. It's found in Matthew 24. You see, the Romans were the ones that destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. Titus and his armies came back and totally massacred the people there. But on top of that, really, they raised whole of Jerusalem down to the ground. Now we see this in Matthew 24. The disciples are coming out from the temple and they want to show Jesus the magnificent structure of the temple, which of course they regarded as most holy during their time. Matthew 24, starting with verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple and His disciples came to show for, to Him for to show Him the building of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus prophesied during that time when Jerusalem would be destroyed. He said what? Not one stone will be left on top of another. And that's exactly the way the Roman armies came and conquered. Not even one stone 
was upon another. Why? Because they came and raised the whole city down to the ground. That's how they were. Stamped the residue. As if this nation or this city or kingdom never existed before. Now, of course, they didn't do it with every single city that they came across, but the main characteristic that they came out was that that's the way they conquered, stamped the residue thereof. Now, let's go back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7. <clears throat> right at the end there, it says, And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had, how many horns? Ten horns. So we see here that this beast was different. It was diverse from all the other kingdoms that existed before it. Why? We will see in a moment why. This word diverse is used again, and come with me now to verse 20. Pardon me. Where is that now? 19. 19, thank you. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, breaking pieces, and stamped the residue. Now it says here also in verse 20, And the ten horns that were in his head, and other which came up before that, whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. And so it talks about how this kingdom was diverse, but then also in verse 23. This is the verse that I was looking for. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down. And then verse 24. That word diverse is used over and over again, but why? It hasn't explained why it's diverse yet, but in verse 24 it does. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Diversity mentioned in relation to not just its, the beast, but really what? The little horn that comes after it, which we're going to look at in verse 8. But note that word diverse, okay? It's used multitudes of times. Verse 19, we see also verse 23 and then 24. That word diverse. And we're going to come back to that characteristic. But come back with me to verse 7. It says that it also had what? Ten horns. Now, what does horns represent in Bible prophecy, verse 24, using the Bible to interpret itself, what are these horns that are sitting upon the beast's head? And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. So what is it referring to? Ten kings. And what we're saying here is really, you see, you're not a king unless you have a kingdom. doesn't matter what you call yourself, but you can't call yourself a king if you don't have a kingdom, Okay. But notice this, now ten kings arose out. This kingdom didn't pass away. This kingdom still remained, but ten horns came out of it. So out of the Roman Empire came ten horns, ten kings. Roman Empire did not, was not conquered from without, it was conquered from within. The Roman Empire fell apart at the seams. It fell apart, why? Because we could say civil unrest, civil war, and out of it arose ten factions. Ten different kings. And these kings, 
Let me read them to you. Three of them don't exist today, but this is what we look at Europe as, and we see that at least seven of these kingdoms that arose out still exist today. The first one was the Alemanni. Alemanni, they were the Germans. Next was the Franks. What they're known today as France. Next were the Burgundians. Burgundians. And we know them today as Switzerland. Next is the Suevi. And we know them to be Portugal. Suevi. S-U-E-V-I. We know them to be Portugal. Next were the Lombards. Lombards. And we know them to be Italy. After that, the Visigoths, which we know to be Spain. And of course, we have Anglo-Saxons, England. And the last three are extinct today. They don't exist. They were the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. The Heruli, Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. Now let me just give you the, some little bit of history behind these three kingdoms that do not exist. The first one, the Heruli, were destroyed, or we could say, according to Bible terms, plucked up in 493 AD. They went extinct in 493 AD, shortly after the falling apart of the Roman Empire there, 493 AD. The Vandals, they fell apart in 534 AD, and the Ostrogoths were finally destroyed and eradicated in 538 AD. So these were the ten horns or the ten kingdoms. Now, history records that. I'm not going to give you references. You can go back and read that in your own time as we're going to be moving on. But these were the ten kingdoms that existed. And remember, when did Roman Empire fall apart? What date was that? 476 AD. This date becomes very important as we continue on because now, remember as we looked in Daniel 2, there was still another kingdom, iron and clay. And now we're seeing the next kingdom that's going to come up in verse 8. Verse 8. Let us move on. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. For the rest of this time, we're going to be spending, we're going to be looking at the identifying marks of this little horn. Because we're going to see that this little horn is the next world power. It lines up with the feet of iron and clay. How do we know? If we go back and look at the feet of iron and clay, what is the element that continued on into the feet? It was iron. Now, do we see the fourth kingdom continuing on into the little horn? Yes. Why? Because the little horn comes up on top of the head of the fourth beast. But on top of that, what did the clay represent when we looked back at it? Hmm? Mm -mm. What did the clay represent? It represented God's people, the church. Now, what does this horn represent? Let's go over to Luke. 
What do we know about a horn in the Bible? Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 69. What does horn represent in the Bible? We're going to look at it back in the interpretation of Daniel as he gives that direct interpretation. But in Luke chapter 1 and verse 69, the Bible says, And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Horn of salvation, that's more religious entity, religious aspects or characteristics that are coming out. But if we go back to Daniel 7 and we allow Daniel to interpret it, this horn in verse 24 is a king. Not only is it a king, but it's also related to religious. So in this horn, we're seeing religious and political entities come together. Just as we saw in the feet of iron and clay, we're seeing political and religious come together. And what can you expect when that happens? Persecution. Of course, we see this later on as we're going to read. But expect that when we see religious and political come together, expect persecution. Now, the little horn has more descriptions than all others. It's mentioned in verse 8. We see it in verse 20 and 21. And we see it in verse 24 and 25. And interspersed between these verses, we see judgment. And that's how we understand that majority of the time it's focusing on the little horn, but also judgment. So really, this is talking about this chapter, the judgment of the little horn. But we're going to be spending the most time this whole next hour or so on identifying who this little horn is, right from the Bible itself. Now, the characteristics of the Roman Empire still lives on in the ten horns and the little horn. How do we know that? Because these ten horns and the little horn come out of the beast. The beast actually per se is not, it doesn't pass away. It's still alive. So as we see the iron continuing on into the feet in Daniel 2, we're seeing the beast still alive as the horns come out. And that fourth beast corresponds with the legs of iron, which is none other than Rome. So although Rome in its political entity, or could I say its organized structure as a world empire has passed away, the fragments of it, the fragments of Rome still exist in the feet and say the ten horns and the little horn. But I want you to notice, notice this. In Daniel 2, we had what? Gold and then silver, then bronze, iron, and then iron and clay. Notice it was a metal, a metal, a metal, and metal, and then what? Metal and clay. Now if you come over to Daniel 7, you see what? Lion and then bear. And then leopard, dreadful and terrible beast, and then what? Little horn. So what we're seeing here is what? Beast, 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 and then what? Transition again, little horn. So both times we're seeing consistency between all the kingdoms until it comes down to the last one. And that's what I'm talking about, diverse. It changes. The fourth beast is not so much diverse in its sense by itself, but what happens upon this beast, the little horn that comes out. The diversity takes place in the little horn the change in the way this kingdom runs or its characteristics that comes, comes out, both in Daniel 2 and also in Daniel 7. This is what we call repeat and enlarge. It's consistent. And we're going to see this again also when it's repeated in Daniel 8. So we're seeing this. Gold, gold, or metal, 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 and then what? 
metal and clay. Beast, 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 and then what? Horn. Change. Although both are still what? World kingdoms. And keep that in mind, okay? Now, I want to spend time now to go through the identifying marks of this little horn. There are 10 in total. Some people have more, some people have less, but I want to give you all the evidence that I've found as I've studied this chapter, okay? The 10 identifying marks of the little horn. And I want this to be clear for you. Not just for the fact, and you may know it already, but not just for the fact for yourself, but that you can show people Bible evidence. It's not enough to point out that this little horn is but you have to show from the Bible the weight of evidence that tells us what this world kingdom and power is, okay? So the first identifying mark, it came up in verse 8, among them. Among who? Who is the them referring to? So it came up among the ten horns, or we're saying the ten Germanic tribes of Rome or what we could call Europe. Now, when did Rome fall? 476 AD. That means this little horn has to arise after 476 AD. That's the first identifying mark because it came up among them. So that means these 10 horns were already established. That means Rome had already fallen. And I'm saying political Rome, pagan Rome is what historians call them. So, this little horn has to come up after 476 AD. Secondly, in the sense that when it came up among them, that means it also came up somewhere in Europe. Because this is where the ten Germanic tribes were located, Europe. So it's giving us a geographical location of this little horn. If it came up among them or in the midst of them, as some of the Bible translations point out, that means it has to come up somewhere in Europe. Okay? Third identifying mark. Let's go back to the Bible. Verse 8, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another, what? Little horn. Now what does horn represent? Kingdom. So little horn represents what? Little kingdom. Little horn, little kingdom. That's according to verse 24 of Daniel 7. So that's the third identifying mark. So, so far we have what? After 476 AD, it has to come up in Europe and it has to be a little kingdom. Number four, let's go back to verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So this, in order for this little kingdom to come up, it had to what? Pluck up three first. Three kingdoms had to be plucked up. So we've got to look for this kingdom, a little kingdom, that plucked up who? The Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. We've got to look for the kingdom that plucked up or destroyed these three kingdoms that don't exist today. 
And lastly, in verse, not lastly, but we're looking at verse 8 again. Plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man. So the next one, eyes of man. And I'm going to take a little bit of time on this one. Eyes of man. First off, it signifies that it has a man, it has a man as, as its head. At its head, I'm sorry. A man. At this one moment, at one point in time, it's a kingdom, but it's a kingly power still. Why? Because it has one man controlling the kingdom. Eyes of a man. But let's go to a few Bible texts that we look at that talk about the eyes of a man, okay? Let's first go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And verse 6. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. What do we understand about eyes? Revelation 5 verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, there's the horns there, and what? Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So here in Revelation 5, we see, a lamb, representing none other than Jesus Christ, who has what? Seven horns. And we see horns also in Daniel, but also seven eyes. And so this is a characteristics of Jesus Christ. But here now in Daniel 7 and verse 8, we see what? A horn with eyes too. It's not Jesus Christ, because this horn later speaks great words against the Most High. So he, this little horn is truly emitting characteristics of the Antichrist. But let's... Go on to our next Bible text in Proverbs. This little horn is emitting characteristics of the Antichrist. Why? Eyes on a horn. And we see this in Revelation 5, where Jesus has seven horns and seven eyes. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 27. Let's look at a few Bible texts and what we understand about the eyes of man. Proverbs 27 and verse 20. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Eyes of man are never satisfied. The first characteristic of the eyes of man, they are what? Never satisfied. Now we're going to stay in Proverbs for our next few texts. But Proverbs 27 and verse 20 was that first one. The eyes of men are never satisfied. Next one, chapter 16 of Proverbs and verse 2. Proverbs 16 and verse 2. Proverbs 16 verse 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. So in their own eyes, of a man, our ways are clean. So, clean in his own eyes. Next characteristic of the eyes of man. Certainly we do look or feel that we are righteous in our own eyes sometimes. But the ways of man are clean in his own eyes. Next Bible text, 21. Proverbs 21 and verse 2. 
similar to the one we just read. But Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. So the ways of man seem right or clean in his own eyes. That was Proverbs 21 and verse 2. Next, Proverbs 3 and verse 7. And this is, we're studying this in relation to the eyes of man that we see in Daniel 7 and verse 7. Proverbs 3, pardon me, Daniel 7 and verse 8. But Proverbs 3 and verse 7, the Bible says, Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. So we are wise in our own eyes. If we look wise in our own eyes, that means we don't what? We don't fear God. So the eyes of man does not fear God. Why? Because we think we are wise. So the eyes of man, according to Proverbs 3, 7, let me read this again. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So when we're not wise in our own eyes, when we don't think that our ways are right or correct or clean, then we're learning to fear God. But a man who looks right and clean in his own eyes, he does not what? Fear God. So the eyes of man thinks he's clean and right in his own eyes. Thus, he does not fear God. Let's go to one more. Proverbs 12 and verse 15. We're going to connect all this back, okay, to characteristics that we find. Proverbs 12 and verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. There you go, opposite to wise, fool. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. But let's finish this off. But he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. So eyes of man thinks he's clean, he's right, he doesn't need counsel, he doesn't fear God. He's a fool. Okay, now come with me to Hosea. And we're going to end it here with the understanding of the eyes of man. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 2. One last characteristic. The main characteristic that really stood out in Proverbs is that the wise or the, the man with his own eyes, eyes of man, does not fear God because he's a fool. He's not wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now in Hosea 13 verse 2 it says, And now they sin more and more and have made the mol them molten images of their silver and idols according to what? Their own understanding. All of it the work of the craftsmen, they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. So really, they make molten images and they worship them in their what? Own understanding. The ways of man, the eyes of man, pardon me, is clean in his own eyes, in their own understanding. In our own understanding, we feel that we're righteous, we're clean. And in our own understanding, we worship what? Golden images, silver images, golden calf, whatever they were doing here. But really, we're seeing here what? Idolatry idolatry. And if you look at the characteristic of Babylon, the main characteristic of Babylon that stood out was idolatry. 
But yet we're seeing, seeing it repeating again in this little horn. Remember, when we looked at Daniel 2, it was one whole image. This whole image was connected. All the characteristics that start off from Babylon went all the way down to the feet. They all existed in the feet too. And we're seeing the same characteristics that come out. Babylon, idolatry, we're seeing here this little horn and through the eyes of man, worshipping idols as well. Not fearing God. Okay? So the main characteristic that we're pulling out here, two, two, in relation to eyes of man. Because we're right in our own eyes and we think that we're clean, first we don't fear God. And this leads to idolatry. Because we're not wise, we're fools. So we don't fear God and idolatry. Okay, that was the fifth identifying mark of this little horn, eyes of man. Now let's go back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and verse 8. The next identifying mark that we find after it says that the eyes of the like the eyes of man and what a mouth speaking great things. So mouth speaking great things. What is this mouth speaking great things mean? Mouth speaking great things. Come with me to Revelation chapter 13. What do we understand about a mouth that speaks great things? Revelation 13 and verse 5. And we're going to see the exact same words replicated over here. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and what? Blasphemies. So mouth speaking great things really is equated to blasphemies. So really this little horn with its mouth, it speaks great things. It speaks blasphemies. Now what does the Bible define as blasphemy? We're just going to point out two, okay? First one, John 10.33. If a man is speaking blasphemies, what is he doing? John 10.33. What does it mean to speak blasphemies? John 10 and verse 33. The Jews answered him, and they are speaking to Jesus here. The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. What did Jesus say here? That he is the son of the father, referring to his father is in heaven. And so they're saying, that means you're claiming to be God. Now was Jesus God? Yes, he was. Was he speaking speaking blasphemy? No. He was truly and verily God on earth. So he had the right to say that. But a man that claims to be God on earth is speaking blasphemy. A man that claims to be God on earth is speaking blasphemy. That's the first definition of a man that speaks blasphemy. Now let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 5. And verse 21. Luke 5 and verse 21. The Pharisees are speaking again here. But let's read verse 20. Actually, let's start with verse 18 to give us a background upon this. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in 
and to lay him before him. Verse 19, And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tilling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And then it says in verse 20, And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the Pharisees respond in verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the Pharisees, not knowing who was sitting before them in their presence, God truly in the flesh, they say, Who is this man? How can you say he can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this man is speaking what? Blasphemy. So the second definition of blasphemy is a man claiming to forgive sins. Two definitions of blasphemy. First, a man claiming to be God. John 10.33 Secondly, a man claiming to forgive sins. Luke 5.21 So these are the two definitions of blasphemy. So this little horn, when it speaks great things, when it's speaking blasphemies, this kingdom or this power or this man is claiming to, number one, be God and then claiming to forgive sins. That's the sixth identifying mark. Now let's move on to the seventh. Let's go back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, and let's read verse 21. I beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So this little horn, what? Makes war with the saints. And if we read in verse 25, we get the similar understanding. It's repeated again, verse 25 of Daniel 7. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So it's repeated twice. First the great words and then also persecuting of God's saints. Speaking great things or great words and then wears out or persecutes God's saints. That's the seventh characteristic. It persecutes God's people. Now how did persecution come about? Combination of church and state. But what we're seeing here, when church and state combined, it's not just persecution in general anymore. The persecution that we're seeing is the persecution of God's people, God's saints. So Daniel 7 is defining clear and clear for us. When we see church and state combined, expect persecution of God's saints. Why? Because those that aren't faithful to God will not be persecuted because they go according to the dictates of man. They're pleasers of men and not pleasers of God. But those that are faithful to God, they will be persecuted. Why? Because they will not follow the dictates of man, but they would rather obey God than the commandments of men. So we're seeing that church plus state not only equals persecution, but what? Persecution of God's saints, God's people. That's the seventh identifying mark. Now let's go down to verse 24, Daniel 7 and verse 24, our next identifying mark. Verse 24, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, that is the little horn, and he shall be diverse from the first, and shall subdue three kings. This little horn was diverse. In which way was it diverse? It was a religio-political power. Religio-political. 
it combined church and state together. Whereas all the other kingdoms that existed before it were strictly political powers. They had nothing to do with the church or any religion per se, but it was strictly the laws of the land, political entities. But when we come to Little Horn now, we're seeing transition. Just as we see in Daniel 2, the combination of church and state, we're seeing Little Horn within it, combining church and state as well. It's diverse, religio-political power. The next identifying mark, verse 25 of Daniel 7. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of time. So this little horn power will think to change times and laws. Think to change times and laws. That's the ninth identifying mark. And I told you I was going to give you 10, so we got one more. But this power in its religious political entity thinks to change times and laws in relation to God's law. Now we're going to come back to that. But just keep that in mind. Changing of time in relation to God's law. Changing of times and laws. Now God and His law in verity cannot be changed at all. That's why He wrote it upon stone doesn't matter if man changes it, but that's why it says think. Think to change times and laws. And the last identifying mark is there found there at the verse 25 at the end. Shall be given into his hand until a time and times and dividing of time. Now that's three and a half times. A time, one time. Times, plural, two. And dividing of time, three and a half times. Now what is this time, times, and dividing of time? We've looked at it in relation to understanding how long Nebuchadnezzar was a beast for in Daniel chapter 4 when he became a beast for seven times which we knew to be seven years but if we go over to Revelation chapter 12 Revelation chapter 12 we see this same time times and dividing of time repeated verbatim now we were over in Revelation 13 we saw a beast speaking great words or great things and blasphemies but in Revelation 12, we see a similar phraseology. We're beginning to see how Daniel and Revelation are complement books, complementary books, and how Revelation is building upon the foundation of Daniel. It's important that we come to study the book of Daniel before we study the book of Revelation. And we're beginning to see now why. Revelation 12 and verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished, for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. So we're seeing here the same phrase being mentioned three and a half times. In the same instance, we see the woman doing what? She's running into the wilderness for three and a half times. Now if we go down to verse 6, go up to verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness. So we see a woman fleeing into the wilderness again where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there, what? A thousand two hundred and three score days. Not three and a half times anymore, but we're seeing now one thousand two hundred and sixty days, which we realize to be three and a half years or 42 months, which is the same as the three and a half times found 
in Daniel 7 and verse 25. But this power will reign for three and a half times, or could we say three and a half years according to Bible prophecy, or really 1,260 days. But interpreting Bible prophecy and time prophecies, we need to look at whether it's a literal three and a half years or prophetic three and a half years. Now, according to Nebuchadnezzar, when we looked at seven times, no man has lived prophetically over 2,000 years before. But if Nebuchadnezzar was to live prophetically, according to prophetic time, that's what I'm saying is seven times 360. That's over 2,000 years. It's impossible. Just human logical reasoning, okay? But if we look at this, Nebuchadnezzar could not have, so we're applying what? Literal time. He was literally a beast for seven years. But now we're coming to prophetic time. And according to prophetic time, a day equals a year. Let me give you two Bible texts. The first is Numbers 14 and verse 34. By interpreting prophetic time, we have to apply scripture that a day equals a year. And that's talked about throughout the Bible. Numbers 14, 34. The Bible says, After the number of the days in which ye searched the land, even forty days each day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities even forty years. So a day equals a year. And also Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6. These two texts are very important to remember. It's essential to interpret Bible prophecy, especially time prophecy with a day equals a year understanding. But we're going to see whether this kingdom reigned for three and a half years or whether it is for 1,260 years. Ezekiel 4, 6, the Bible says, And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty years. I have appointed thee each day for a year. In Numbers and in Ezekiel, the same prophecy that was talked about, each day for a year. Okay? So, in looking at this tenth identifying mark, three and a half times or three and a half years, is it literal three and a half years? Or is it prophetic three and a half years, which is 1,260 years? Now let's do a little bit of reasoning here for a moment. As we look at Daniel 7, let's go back there. I want to show you this. Daniel 7. In verse 7, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and what? Strong exceedingly. And you come down to verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns, plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. And then you jump over with me to verse 20. The ten horns that were in his head and of the other which came up and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, which is referring to which horn? The little horn. And a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more what? Stout than his other fellows. This horn was more stout than the kingdoms that came before it. It was greater, it was more powerful in the kingdoms that came before it. First reasoning, a kingdom cannot be great if it only lasts for three and a half years. Okay? The kingdom cannot be more stout than its other kingdoms or fellows if it only lasts for three and a half years. Secondly, if we look at the time framing, 
And beginning with Babylon, all the way down to this kingdom, the fifth kingdom, how long did Babylon rule for? 605 to 539. How many years is that? It's 66 years. I've already done the calculations for you. But the first kingdom, Babylon, that was mentioned, it ruled for 66 years. Second kingdom, Medo-Persia, it reigned for 208 years. That's how long Medo-Persia, that kingdom of silver, that kingdom of the bear, it reigned for only 208 years. Third kingdom, Greece, it reigned for 163 years. Very similar to Medo-Persia. And then Rome, political entity of Rome, that is. It reigned for 644 years. So Babylon, we're seeing it reigns for 66 years, then 208, then 166, 163, pardon me, and 644 years. Basically, the length and the time it rules is getting larger and larger and larger. And if this little horn was to be more stout than all the other kingdoms and stronger than all the other kingdoms that came before it, and only reigns for three and a half years, that's impossible. So we have to, by human reasoning, apply this day equals year principle. So this fifth kingdom, the little horn, reigns for 1,260 years. It has to be, not days. Because this kingdom is stronger than all the others that came before it. And as we see in Daniel 2 also, militarily it's getting stronger. Why? Because that iron still existed in the feet. It continued on. The strength of iron, that iron that it was existed in the legs, also exists in the feet. So militarily it is strong as well. And so by all human reasoning, by looking at time framing, we're seeing that this kingdom must reign longer than all the others before it. So here are the 10 identifying marks of the little horn. Now, who is this little horn? Most of you probably already know. But if we sum up all these facts, let's repeat it again and look at it and apply the characteristics that we see here. First, it has to come up after 476 AD. Secondly, it must come up among them. It has to come up in Europe. Thirdly, it is a little horn. That means it is a little kingdom. Fourth, it has to pluck up three, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. Next, it has to have eyes of a man, must have a man at its head, and also included in that is idolatry and not worshipping or fearing God. Six, it has a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. That means that it's a man that claims to forgive sins and a man that claims to be God. Seventh, it makes war with the saints for how long? 1,260 years. That's our 10th identifying mark with the 7th. 8th, it is diverse. This kingdom is not only political, it's also religious as well. It's a religio-political power. Ninth, it thinks to change times and laws. And lastly, it reigns for a time, times, and half a time. Who is this? It's none other than the Vatican, the papacy, the Catholic Church. Call it what you may. But all 10, and I'm stressing here, all 10, and if, more, if you find more, all ten must match up with the Catholic Church. Do I hate the Catholic Church? No, I don't. But I do not agree with the system that it has. Jesus here, through Daniel, is not pointing out a man, per se. He's pointing out a system. 
because many popes have existed and ruled. But he's not pointing out that man, but he's pointing out the system. I'm, I must be clear on this. Because you see, when we come out to this, come down to this understanding of identifying who this little horn is not the people that we ought to hate, but it's the system that comes against it. And you got to understand, fighting against systems is one of the hardest things that you, you come across. Jesus fought against systems in his day. He didn't fight against man. He fought against systems that were already established, man's traditions. And he lost. They crucified him. But yet at the same time, we still need to point out and identify these systems. Why? Because God speaks against it. Not against man. So we don't use anything personal to put into this, okay? But these 10 identifying marks is identifying that political government that will reign, that will persecute God's people, that will take characteristics of God and say that it's God on earth, that it forgives sins. We've got to point out the system so that people will not be deceived. Now let's go through these 10 to make sure that the Vatican, the papacy lines up with it real quickly, okay? First, it came up after 476 AD. When did the papacy come into reign? 538. Now the Catholic Church existed before then. It had existed for a few hundred years already. But it came into reign as a political religious power, a world power in 538 AD, when the last of the Germanic tribes of the three were plucked up. The Vandals. Pardon me, the Ostrogoths. The Ostrogoths were destroyed in 538 AD. And that was when the papacy came to reign as a political, religio, religio-political power. Secondly, it came up among them. It has to come up in Europe, of course. The Vatican is located where? Italy. In the heart of Europe. Thirdly, it's a little horn. It's a little kingdom. The Vatican is the smallest kingdom in the whole world. And yet, in this little kingdom is represented all the countries, all the ambassadors, all the embassies are there. You don't find that in every country. But in the Vatican, you find all the countries of the world represented. It's a kingdom, little one. Number four, it plucked up three. Go back and read histories. These were the three kingdoms that Vatican or the papacy had to pluck up before it came to power. Why? Because these were the three main ones that we call Aryan tribes. And the Aryans were the ones, or what we call Arianism, was that they believed that Jesus Christ was what? Created. And somehow their theology didn't line up with it, and so the Vatican had to pluck them up. There's a lot more political reasons behind that as well. But in the light of prophecy, we're seeing that in order to make way for the Vatican to come up, three had to be plucked. And these were the three. History records it. Number five, it has eyes of man. Yes, it has a man, a man at its head. It's none other than the Pope. And on top of that, they certainly do have idolatry. Worshipping of saints and statues, they're there. Next, mouth speaking great things. The Pope claims to be the vicar of God. Or what we say, the representative of God on earth. Surely the Son of God on earth. And on top of that, they do claim to forgive sins. We know indulgences, confession boxes, paying money to get your folks out of hell faster. That is Catholic understanding, the system. Seventh, it makes war with the saints, and that is what 
took place during the Dark Ages when the papacy combined with the religious entity of Rome. And that is what we're seeing continuing into the feet. The iron that continues on is none other than the political entity of Rome that comes in, which gives it its military strength. But yet the one that's in charge is the Pope. And that's how it makes war with the saints. Now, when you combine religious with political, you see what happens is that people says, you got to worship this way according to what we say. And if you've got military power behind it, you start to persecute those that don't worship according to the dictates of your conscience, uh, according to the dictates of your laws or mandates. And that's exactly what happened during the Dark Ages. Millions and millions of Jews and Christians were killed. Dark not because the sun didn't shine, but dark because of lack of spiritual light. Lack of light from the Bible. When the Bibles were changed to the walls and the pulpits, when it was in Latin and common people couldn't read it. But out of this came the Great Reformation. That's for another place and another time. Number eight is diverse, certainly religio-political power. Number nine, it thinks it changed times and laws. And did it? Yes, it did. The Pope, and you're going to find that you're going to read in the Catholic encyclopedias, they have question and answer. Did you change? Yes. Why? Yes, we changed the worship day from Sabbath to Sunday. Why? Because we had power to do it. Just to show that we could and had power to do it. So it changed that day from Saturday, Sabbath to Sunday. Changed God's law, time. And lastly, it rained for 1,260 years. It began in 538 to 1798. Be not deceived. Revelation warns that this power will come back to life again. Revelation 13 describes it as a deadly wound. And in that same chapter, we see this beast representing that same power we just studied in Daniel 7. It would do us well to memorize these characteristics. We need to know this. We need to understand this. It's not enough to tell people that we say the little horn is a Catholic church and that's it, but we must be able to show them from the Bible, their Bible even. We need to know these things, friends. And if we don't, I suggest that you find people to share it with because only in teaching can you remember. But this is the characteristics of the little horn, which tells us who the Antichrist is, which tells us that this little horn is the Catholic Church, the papacy. If there's ever a time that we need to be ready, it is today. The characteristics are there. The times of the end are there. The healing of the deadly wound, which what is described in Revelation 13.3, is almost there. But what is not there is God's saints. God is still waiting for His people. We need to really study, especially the books of Daniel Revelation. Sister Ellen G. White tells us, when the books of Daniel Revelation are rightly studied and understood, there will be a revival of primitive godliness such as we're not, not seen since the apostolic days, since the time of the apostles. And then she says, then the fires of persecution will be rekindled. So really, why is there no persecution today? Because people are not studying and rightly understanding the books of Daniel Revelation. We need to understand these books today for the relevance of our time that we're living in. Daniel Revelation was more relevant to us than it ever was before to those who wrote it back then. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Let's kneel for prayer.
Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that your word is so clear, that you give us evidence upon evidence to show us who each kingdom is. But most of all, Lord, you've warned us about the future. Lord, we have no excuse to be in darkness. We have no excuse to not be ready when that day shall come. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to be ready today, that we would be prepared for that time to come upon us in the future. But most of all, Father, I pray that this words that we've learnt, with the wisdom and understanding behind it, help us to share this with our friends, that they too may be ready for the coming crisis. Bless us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information on this and other presentations, please visit adventproductions.com. International copyright applies.